Looking for a way to level up your coaching and win more? Get better fast with GMS Plus. GMS Plus is your on-demand source for the best, most proven volleyball courses, drills, stats, videos, tips, and much more. Learn from some of the game's winningest coaches and players, including Heather Olmsted, Keegan Cook, John Spraw, Mike Wall, and Courtney Thompson. I've learned a great deal from Gold Medal Squared, as have many of our guests. Whether you're trying to win a state championship or an Olympic gold medal, GMS Plus will help you get there. And we have a Coach Your Brains Out code for listeners. To get 20% off an annual subscription, go to goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO and enter the code CYBO. That's goldmedalsquared.com slash CYBO. Welcome to Motor Learning for Coaches. This show features Casey Kreider, Harjeev Singh, Andy Bass, and John Mayer. The mission of this project is to bring motor learning theory out of the lab and into your practice and game space. After one listen, you'll be ready to coach your brains out. All right, happy to be back with Motor Learning for Coaches with Casey Kreider and Andy Bass. We'll start with Andy leading today. I guess it just it's always fun to kind of catch up, you know, because we do these every couple of months. I feel like baseball season just ended yesterday, but did I hear spring training already started? Is that is that right? Yeah, you and me both, and I'm I'm in it every day. I feel like the offseason is all 48 hours before we reported. Uh, yes, I've almost been down here a full month now, but we are definitely in the throes of spring training. Minor league camps even going strong right now. So, yeah, we've got probably three weeks left, and like anybody will tell you records at spring training, be they really good records or really bad records have virtually no correlation to success or failure during the season. So it's fun that the pirates have a philosophy of we're, we're winning this year. It may not be a hundred games, but we're, we're on the uphill from away from this rebuild. And that's one thing we've talked about is we're refusing to use the word rebuild anymore. It's, it's time to win and it's time to expect to win. That's exciting. It'll be fun to, to follow along and see that. And I know all the, the development you guys have been doing is, is, uh, you know, going to pay off and hopefully we keep seeing the fruits of it this year. Um, well, I know you had a, a topic you want to take us into. So could you start us off? Sure. So the topic is focus of attention. And I do want to caveat that I realize that this topic in motor learning and coaching circles has, has been done to death recently. And I wanted the three of us to be able to add some nuance to it. The first thing that I wanted to speak on was truly this gray area I think when the paradigm was first introduced to coaching, it was, see, it's binary, it's external or internal, and internal bad, external good. And nothing in sport can be black or white. And several years ago, uh, a colleague of mine and a very established professor, Dr. Kevin Becker, was interested in adding some gray and some nuance to this. And he looked at this idea that he termed holistic focus of attention. And John, I'm not quite sure the episode, but I know you've had him on yep. uh, in the past. And what he was interested in was the feel of the movement. And when I say feel, not the internal feel, but like a swimmer, he described it as a, somebody that's swimming wants to feel easy speed or a volleyball player wants to feel, feel loose and fluid when they're serving. So it's more about the dynamic subjective feel of the athlete uh, versus, hey, hit it to this area on the court, which would be external, or think about your elbow coming up to your shoulder if you're serving, which would be internal. And what was really interesting about this is, number one, he did find a holistic focus benefit. Uh, it was similar to external, but it was definitely substantially better than internal. What I think this is such a good nuance to add is that in order to find a holistic cue with an athlete, the coach needs to engage in certain conceptual frameworks like motivational interviewing. 
to find the proper cue for said athlete, we as coaches have to ask good questions. Hey, that was an inter- you know, that, that particular rep looked really good. What, what, what did you feel there? Oh, I'm not really sure. Okay, well, let's do a couple more. Hey, on that one, I noticed this. What did you feel there? Well, I felt, I felt really explosive. I felt really balanced. Okay, well, how about the next couple, your focus be explosive and balanced. And so it's having this dynamic, synergistic question asking process with the athlete that I think is so important. I think everybody listening would agree asking questions is important. So that was a brief introduction to holistic focus. That Andy, could, more- I, could I go real fast? Sorry. What if they respond with, oh, uh, I felt like I got my elbow back. Um, that, and it, they, they can go there and it would more be, okay, that's, that's great. Um, an elbow back is not fantastic. It's not, I thought, think I got my elbow beyond my scapula, but it could be, okay, think about what did you feel when that elbow moved? So maybe it's, oh, I felt like it was really quick. Mm. So maybe instead of elbow back, it's quick elbow. So just asking that question, can you say, the best question is, can you say more about, okay, you said you got your elbow back. Can you say more about that feel? You know, there can always be a question after an answer as well. That's great. Thanks. And so I bring that up quick hitter on focus, holistic focus of attention to then bring some more of Dr. Becker's research in here as well, as well as some others. Uh, But this idea of shifting focus of attention. And as I mentioned earlier, this paradigm started off internal is a four letter word never be internal. And I think any of us that are coaches on this call know that that's just simply not practical. I'm working through Rob Gray's book, new book right now, and even he mentions that it's just not practical from an applied standpoint. So then how do we function with this? Well, if we know external, I'm using air quotes here, is better than internal, particularly performance, then we need to make sure that we're granting more external cues than internal cues. But what Dr. Becker has found, and there was even a study done in our lab in Tennessee with Dr. Jeffrey Fairbrother and Dr. Kaylee Woodard with a long jump, where they found that if you use an external focus, fantastic. Performance was awesome, better than internal, good to go. They used an internal, their performance tended to be worse during retention and transfer. But if they started internal, so with a golf chip or a long jump, it was think about your knees and your hips or your arms. But when they either approach the ball or they approach the starting line to jump forward, and they shifted to an external, then the experimenter would say, okay, now I want you to focus on jumping to this far cone. Or I want you to think about your arms swinging like a pendulum in golf. Then they found that the performance there was no different than the pure external focus of attention. So as coaches, it's how can we shift their performance right when they're about to move? And even in Dr. Becker's abstract, he mentions that the external focus is probably mostly beneficial due to its influence on performance and not movement preparation. That external internal on movement preparation may be the same, but onto performance, that's when we need to make sure that the athlete shifts. And to tie this back together with a lot of different like constraints-led approach and differential learning, uh, one of Dr. Wolf, Dr. Debbie Wolf's studies that was published recently looked at variability and what type of focus of attention did that elicit? And in their study, what they found was that variation, so random practice, constraints-led approach, I don't think she used constraints-led approach, she used random practice, but this idea of variation, uh, when they asked the participants afterward, they actually organically, dynamically engaged in an external focus of attention when they were in the variation group. When they were in the blocked group, where they were doing the same thing, their responses, once again, not prompted prior by the experimenter, was more internal. And so if all the research is showing that external tends to be better, variation tends to be better, and now we found out that a variable practice environment actually elicits an external focus, 
then you know the jury shouldn't really be out anymore on the fact that variable practice and external is for the most part the best way to go with this. So I, I just found those two studies very fascinating, particularly the idea that variation naturally elicits an external focus and it elicits an external focus that is natural to the athlete. We aren't giving them the focus. They're creating it on their own and it's emerging <laughs> dynamically from the environment. So that, that's my soapbox on this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but just the idea of internal and external is way more nuanced than we think. Variation naturally elicits an external focus. And then somewhere in the middle, there's this holistic focus that we as the coaches have to be so good at asking questions and being attuned to the player to help them verbalize the actual feel of the movement. That's great. Well, I feel like Casey's got things buzzing in his head. So I just want to open the floor. Casey, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, well, yeah, lots for sure. Uh, the first thing is when I when I kind of um, cross paths with the Becker study, um, it just, to your point earlier, Andy, about the idea that it's, we need to get past this surface level of uh, understanding of external is good and internal is bad. And as a start, that's that's a good place to start. But it's the nuance um, beyond that is pretty powerful. So I think that we're not done uh, getting the fruit from this internal external focus of attention tree, uh, so to speak. And this idea, I think um, he, it was mentioned in the, in the, the study that... Um, an internal focus in the preparation phase uh, is didn't seem to have a negative impact on performance so long as there was an external focus of, of attention uh, during the execution, the movement execution. And those two, that little paradigm there, I don't think it was intentional to create that, but I thought that that was pretty useful. It, what it did for me as a, as a you know, uh, boots on the ground coach is it stopped making dis the discussion of like body parts or kinematics. It stopped making that like taboo. It just, I had to do it with a, with a, a particular purpose and um, I had to take great care as I did it. Uh, but I, I, it was okay to say the word elbow. <laughs> it was okay to say the word shoulder or foot or, and even draw some of their attention to that. It just, the, the timing of that was, was critical. And uh, so for us, um, there's been a subtle shift where you'll hear probably a little bit more classically internal language, um, kind of like maybe when we're watching film uh, or like in a water break, or if they're, you know, we don't do a lot of stuff with them standing in lines, but if they were uh, maybe going, hey, uh, tell me what you felt. And they go, yeah, my elbow this. And they go, yeah, it's, I saw your elbow here, elbow there. And on this one, uh, we like a big cycle. Uh, something like that. And uh, that has, whereas once upon a time, um, maybe we heard the word elbow and we plugged our ears and, you know, threw a fit. And so uh, for me, that, to your point, I think uh, we don't need to treat internal focus of attention uh, as taboo. We need to treat it with great care. And, and we need to be really sensitive to uh, the moments that it comes up um, because, uh, what we know, and this is what, you know, the, the massive body of research has shown is that an internal focus probably during the execution phase is detrimental, uh, both for performance and learning. 
but we can't, that's not a, a blanket statement. If we don't, not doing it during this execution phase, if it's during the planning phase and we can, you know, be certain uh, to, to whatever degree is possible that we're going to end up as they're performing the action externally, um, then that's okay. And, and it may, what I've found, um, if anything, for, uh, for in the application, it makes for more natural conversation because John brought up the, the example of like, well, hey, I felt my elbow do this. Well, it gets kind of unnatural and awkward uh, when you're saying, well, we don't talk about that. And then it, you know, it, there, there's a, there's an element of like, Hey, let's have a conversation, not like this little experiment going on. And, uh, so we, we can naturally use internal foci, uh, it's in specific moments, as long as to your point, whether it's through motivational interviewing or, uh, just our conversational ability, we navigate them back to during the performance phase or the execution phase, uh, or help them navigate, I should say, um, to an external focus. Um, and that, that's been huge. It just feels like conversation flows a little bit better. Maybe they're a little bit, uh, more comfortable being vulnerable because they're not thinking like, how does coach want to hear this? You know, they're just saying what they think. And that's, I think the ability to do that, um, creates maybe a safer learning environment, which is maybe even foundationally beneath all of this stuff. And it's what all of this rests on. Um, so yeah, I think that, the it just, the, the, the Becker, um, the Becker stuff really helped me, um, whether, you know, holistic focus, uh, I mean, just this idea of a shift in the focus, um, was really valuable. And then I think there's a whole nother conversation around ta- task and activity design, uh, around the wolf stuff, which uh, can be used to help facilitate different, you know, focuses or foci, whatever the word is, but Becker stuff was, was important for me because conversations felt more natural. I didn't feel like I was going to coaching jail for saying elbow. <laughs> and, um, you know, as I just, it, it helped me reframe this idea that internal is not bad. It just is sensitive. It's, it needs to be highly considered when it comes up. Before we go into the, some of the maybe differential learning or constraints, the, the variability in practice, just staying on this study, I could see why, you know, having the athlete, maybe have an internal focus or giving them some suggestions or ideas for movement and then moving to external could be helpful, especially in the short term. Is there any concerns in the long term, you know, touching on these internal ideas and and some of the stuff we've talked about, like, uh, you know, causing the yips or taking away some of the problem solving that comes from having only an external focus? Uh, is, is there anything we should be concerned about from that sense that, um, yeah, invoking an internal focus more often might bring some of these out. I'd, I'd say yes. Um, and although this is a little more along like the linear side of things, but an internal focus when an athlete's more of a novice tends to be a little better. And as they get better, you move into an external. But this is where what Casey said is so imperative for coaches to understand. This is it's a sen- it's sensitive in the case that we have to be very deliberate. If we're going to engage in, okay, it's okay to have internal cues, then we have to be completely deliberate about making sure that we are shifting and then giving them an external cue. Now we can't know whether they're adhering to that external cue or if they've shifted, but we've done everything we can to say, like Casey mentioned, the volleyball players in the line. I know y'all don't do lines a lot, which is awesome. Baseball does lines. I hate it. Players just stick around all the time. It's brutal. Y'all are dynamic. It's awesome. But if a volleyball player does say, Hey, I felt my elbow going behind my scalp. Okay. Yeah. I noticed that. Hey, on this next one though, you know, think about, you know, being quick with your elbow or what do you, what do you think about being quick with your elbow? So we just need to be, we get more of what we think about Dr. Bernie Holiday is, 
if we want them to be external, we should provide them with external or elicit that from them. And, you know, this is kind of going along with this benefit of shifting from an internal to an external. And I'm going to bring up Dr. Holiday again. There is a video of Annika Sorenstam on YouTube where she talks about her think box and her play box, where when she was playing before she addressed the ball, she would be thinking internally. Okay, I need to do this, the, the lie, even if tactically the lie is here, I need to make sure I do this with my elbow. And then once she stepped over a line into her play box, she was totally external. She was pretty darn good. I'm not saying we need to use anecdotal evidence to use that for empiricism, but there, she figured out this before the research was even done. And then with the idea that internal isn't necessarily bad, you know, there have been plenty of studies to back up the constraint, uh, the constraint action hypothesis to show that if somebody is engaged in like a weightlifting routine and they have more of an internal focus, they have more muscle activation, which is what you would like in a strength training session for the most part. And yet that also lends credence to, wow, when we do engage in an internal focus, we have higher, more constrained muscle activation, which great in the weight room, not great when we're playing. So the shift is where we need to, what, that's where we need to live is shifting and making sure that we as coaches are deliberate about our language with that shift. Yeah. If, if anybody hasn't seen, there's a, a video with Annika Sorenstam going through that on YouTube. And we had an episode on Coach Your Brains Out with Bernie Holiday discussing it. And I think it's a, a really great concept. My players, they hear that once and they're like, oh, that makes so much sense. Um, I, when I talk to you two, I hear you guys like, you know, you're aware of the 25 years of research. You guys are advanced level coaches and understanding. But still, when I go out to a practice, I hear so many coaches with the majority of what they say is internal and body driven. So I don't know, are we beyond this? You guys are saying, you know, like, like, should we be even opening up the floodgate a little bit and saying, oh, yeah, it is okay to use internal? Because uh, I, I don't know if this is like in th in practice, like, shouldn't we just say it's off limits because if we even give coaches a little bit of a chance to talk about elbows they're gonna they're gonna just feast on that aren't they if you give somebody a, a, an inch they'll take a foot <laughs> yeah i that that's a that's a great question because i've had that conversation with coaches a lot about internals not bad and then i go outside bang they go back to internal that's just where the art of coaching coaching coaches comes in is hey back off on the internal. We're not saying it's bad, but that is not opening the floodgates, giving you free reign to just completely go to your default of internal. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe Casey, can we move on to some of the, the variability, the um, yeah, how this applies just in terms of practice design when we're thinking about, uh, I don't know, stuff like differential learning, which does seem to invoke a lot of uh, internal focuses in theory you're using, right? You're using uh, body parts. Yeah, I guess, where do you take this uh, when it comes to practice design? Yeah, um, I, I, in respect to the, the, second, um, the second piece of research that we're discussing here um, about the variation in practice, um, I, I think one of the things that's critical to understand is most of the literature uh, on folks who do, not all of it, minus stretch, but most of it, the big bulk of it, is in queuing. So it's the the... the instructions or the conversations or the concepts that we provide to our athletes, typically verbally, you know, but, um, and it's important for us to understand that there's internal external cues and they're not perfectly related though. Oftentimes they are to internal external focus of attention. One is of the athlete. The focus of attention is of the athlete. The cue is coming, you know, from a 
typically an outside source, although they could provide it to themselves. But the idea is that the queue is a is a tool or a means to influence focus of attention. It's not the only one. And I think this is really important for us to understand uh, that we can change things uh, in our activity design. And as, as organisms, we tend to be very sensitive to variation. We tend to be very sensitive to change. We uh, if you study the eyes at all, you know that the microcicades that happen are are that they're creating variation to help form an image for us. If they were static, we wouldn't be able to see anything. But because we're constantly adding in variation, we are we are incredibly sensitive as organisms to variability, to variation. So uh, when we change tasks, whether it's equipment, whether it's scoring, whether it's dimensions of practice uh, or the space that we're we're conducting this practice in, when we make changes to that stuff. It can, it typically does. I don't even want to say it can. It often and typically does influence attention. And so, one of the things that I think, um, I, to give an example, um, we use, uh, for example, when we're training our, our pastors to receive SERP, there's a bunch of uh, little heuristics or principles that we would use to say, hey, um, these training conditions are probably better than those, et cetera, et cetera. There's choices we make as, as, a co as coaches here. But one of the things that people often are kind of scratch their head at is they'll see us serving different weighted balls kind of at random. So they'll see like a volley light. And that's for people that aren't volleyball people. That's like a young kids use it. It's much lighter. It has a different movement pattern or not movement pattern, but it has a different movement characteristics as it floats through the air. We use a regular volleyball. We use a beach volleyball. We use a weighted setters ball. Um, we'll use, we've even, we haven't gotten to passers so much, maybe with setters, but we've even used basketballs. Um, and we're doing that for a number of different reasons, not just to uh, influence their focus of attention, but by nature, without us saying a word, um, when they report back to us what they were focused on, it's almost always some relationship that they have with the ball that's in flight. Well, this one was like moving way more. That one was seemed sounded or seemed pretty heavy. They very rarely talk about their body parts, their movements, any of that. And that's not, we, we didn't ask them to think about anything in particular, but we did influence their focus of attention. We drew it externally through adding in some variation as opposed to just hitting the same serve or the same volleyball over and over and over again, which at some point there's not enough variation there. So we, it becomes much easier for us to draw our attention internally. We, we because I, I start, the conditions become more predictable I start going, okay, on this one, I want to keep my right foot forward. On this one, I want my shoulder to tilt down more. But when I start, when, when we add in this varied ball flight, with that, that is random. It's not systematic or linear. It's random. Sometimes it's light and sometimes it's heavy and sometimes it's a beat. It, it just, we put them in a cart and we pick them out and we just start hitting them at them. And once they do that, it's much tougher for them to occupy, to occupy their attention internally because they they have to be sensitive to the changes that are out there. So that's an example. I'm sure Andy has tons in baseball that he could provide, but that's, I don't know if that's classic differential learning to your point earlier. I think there's much more of this uh, concern with um, differential learning in terms of an internal focus of attention, but we are leveraging stochastic resonance. Uh, we are leveraging just random noise in this passers learning system um, to help them better attune to stuff. Uh, part part of that learning process is drawing their attention externally.
which we think is a really positive thing. But Andy, I'd imagine you got lots in baseball where you guys just change conditions in practice uh, or randomizing stuff, adding in variability. And one of the byproducts is this really awesome external focus of attention that that uh, emerges organically. We're not cueing it to them. They're, it's not ours. As you mentioned earlier, it's not ours that we're giving to them. It's just emerging. Uh, it's just happening based on the conditions of the task. And I think um, to kind of wrap up this, you know, droning on thought here, <laughs> I think uh, we just, it'd be really behoove coaches to appreciate that it's not just cueing. We don't have to, it, focus of attention stuff doesn't have to just be cueing. We can manipulate the task that they're doing, the environment they're doing it in, the conditions of the task, whatever. We can change those things and it will typically have an effect on their focus of attention. And if we're sensitive to what that effect is, we can leverage it to make it more external over time. Um, that was incredible. And I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna see your stochastic residence and raise you a hypofrontality hypothesis term. So everything can, is- Can you, okay, you gotta spell that first. If you're gonna say something crazy like that, you gotta spell H-Y-P-O-F-R-A-N-T-A-L-I-T-Y. It's hard to one-up Casey on vocabulary, so congrats. I think that's a win for the day. Yeah. Hey, if it makes you feel any better, John, my parents, uh, over the last couple of weeks, every text I get from them includes the word parsimonious. <laughs> I think it's just hilarious. So, I yeah, it's, I'm getting it from all angles over here. All right, good. I'm glad. Um, I, I, everything, everything you said, totally on board with, and just that idea of what you mentioned with your athletes. And granted, I think we could still do a much better job of it in baseball, but <clears throat> to – play off the, the term that I just described. And John, I'm not sure if I talked about this on one of your podcasts a couple of years ago, but what Casey is describing about how this external focus occurs without them recognizing it, because the more reps we do, then we can go internal. You know, the more bored we get, or the, not bored, but just the more we're doing something over and over, and there's not a lot of noise, then our prefrontal cortex kind of starts lighting up, that conscious thought starts happening, which is how we get in our own head. The hypofrontality hypothesis, hypo lessening frontality, the prefrontal cortex. So adding this variation kind of turns your conscious mind down like a dimmer switch. And then your vestibular apparatus, then the back of your brain that's responsible for, <laughs> you're welcome, that's responsible <laughs> for balance and basically just keeping us upright, that has to go into hyperdrive. And then that's where that external focus comes in, because if we think about our body and our body gets blocky, then we're going to follow. We're more likely to not be able to control our body. And the only thing our body cares about is keeping itself safe. So with everything Casey said, whether it's a constraints-led approach to be a variation, whether it's random practice with variation or differential learning, any one of those is useful for a myriad of reasons. And just from a psychological perspective, if we've got an athlete that's very much, quote, in their own head, do these drills, great way to get them out of their own head because now their brain, their conscious brain is going to stop thinking as much. As you guys have said, it, it's made me thought of kind of the initial idea, but taking it into the constraints-led approach, would we want to do the same sort of sequencing where, you know, it seems like something, I don't know, maybe the connection ball in baseball where you put it under your elbow or Casey's done, you put the towel on your back when you're passing and serve receive. Those seem to maybe make you think about body parts more, right? Maybe a little bit. And when it comes to the constraints led approach, maybe more internally focused versus I'm going to try to hit it over this wall or the court's a little bit smaller. Um, I guess I'm curious, would you think in the same way, would you go from this connection ball then to the next activity as they, you know, into more externally focused uh, into, you know, try to hit the glove? Do you think thinking in that same sort of way would be a way to do it? 
with the connection ball and any constraint, and that's, I, I get this question a lot. It's, well, if I put a, a towel on their shoulder or put a connection ball into their elbow, aren't they going to think about that? Yes, if we don't give them a goal. Mm. With the connection ball, it's you're going to throw this and you're, the connection ball, when your elbow releases, the connection ball needs to go in front of you. If it goes to the right of you, if you're a right-handed pitcher, then you haven't done the drill properly. So yeah, it's under your elbow, but you're giving them a goal within the constraint. And Casey, I'll let you talk about with, with the towel, but yeah, we're doing something that manipulates their body, but just like that idea of endpoint learning, we need to make sure they have a specific goal. You can call it external if you want in mind when we're engaged in the CLA to keep what you just described from happening, John. Mm. Yeah, all, all the behaviors, anything, anytime we'd add in something like that, in this case, the tell, they need to be goal directed, like they need to be goal oriented. And it's not just, uh, you know, keep the towel, you know, there's, there's in, in our aspect, we're serving to them or teammates are serving to them. Sometimes they're doing it when they play and they're, we, we basically bake it into the rules. So if you pass uh, and the towel comes off, uh, the best your team can do or the best you can do is wash the rally out. You can't win it. Uh, so there's still an affordance there in terms of like, hey, the ball's up really high and I misread it and I need to just pass it. Um, the towel's going to come off. We can wash it out. I don't like the idea that like you end the rally. I think there needs to be like, because when you just say, hey, you have to keep the towel on period, it eliminates some of the affordances that are relevant to the game. We're just trying to amplify the one where they're in some series or bandwidth of body postures that um, promotes this towel staying on. But they also, they have a setter they're passing to. That and that setter, like they're going to be impacted by the quality of pass. We want them to pass that ball in a way that makes the setter comfortable. So um, there's probably a conversation to be had uh, with the towel about like a proximal versus distal external focus. Um, and you'd want to be sensitive to trying to keep track in as many ways as possible of what they're actually paying attention to, where their attention actually lies. But for us, um, as long as the behavior is goal directed, we are pretty confident that um, there, that's a lot to consider. That's a you need that requires a lot of attention. Uh, this dual task, which not from a uh, experimental design standpoint, but this this two tasks of keep the towel on, pass the ball well, uh, so that your setter is comfortable. That tends to draw their attention to stuff that's not their shoulders or not their spine or not. It's, it's a byproduct. And, and the towel thing, I think for us was mostly like feedback amplification. If that makes any sense, like uh, naturalized feedback amplification. We, we had some passers who would pass the ball behind them a lot because the ball came up and they would get jammed. So instead of us going, no, stay forward, no, you came up, no, your spine. They say, instead of us talking, we just put towel on and then you know how frustrating it is with a folded towel to pick it up off the ground and like fold it again and put it back. It's like it, at some point that gets frustrating and it destabilizes what they're currently doing so that they try other stuff. So there's a whole re bunch of reasons. It's not just one reason we use that or have used it in the past, but um, we do it for a lot of reasons. And one of them certainly is to draw their attention more externally. That's great. Well, I think we're at our time here and just realizing, you know, today uh, Harjeev is traveling with the Orlando magic and, He's someone who's, you know, spent his PhD on this stuff. You, you guys have anything? What, what would he uh, be calling us out on or have added? Any, I don't know. Is there anything that we we didn't didn't hit on? Any any thoughts there to close this? I don't even want to try to speculate how, how much he knows. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared. I'm scared. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous for what he's going to say when he listens. Yeah, I guess that'll be the exciting part is to get his feedback. Cool. Well, I, we did our best without Harjeev and ho hopefully... Uh, 
Uh, I think there, there I, not hopefully, there are a lot of practical takeaways here for coaches to to move forward and to move beyond just the bad and good and, and find all the nuance. So uh, I feel like we did good on this one. Nice, nice work, guys.